with the book of Isaiah, or you can follow along uh, with the scripture printed on the screen behind me. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Isaiah, and we come into a new section this morning. So I invite you to hear the word, the living word of the living God. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of the heavens are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man, sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. When I first started regularly leading worship about 15 years ago, the church that we attended usually began worship with the reading of one of the Psalms. And as we started worship each Sunday, I often found myself feeling quite awkward about how often the Psalms would speak about the judgment of God. 
The Psalms are supposed to be the worship songs of God's people throughout history. They were the first words of our Sunday worship service. And starting off with God as judge often just kind of struck me as off-putting, kind of a downer note as you move into worship. I think that might be a feeling that I share with many of you, many fellow Western Christians, and many people, many modern people in general. But our passage this morning actually says the very opposite of that. Isaiah tells us that the very judgment of God evokes songs of joy. Isaiah invites us this morning to do something that probably does not come naturally to many of us. He invites us to experience joy in the judgment of God. And he does that by describing the reality of judgment, the reason for it, and the response to judgment. So we'll look at those three things, reality, reason, and response this morning. In our passage this morning, Isaiah is pivoting from what's gone before. Ten oracles about the nations in chapters 13 through 23 to now taking a global, universal, we might even say cosmic perspective. Chapters 24 through 27 form the great climax of part two of Isaiah, or we might say the second movement of the book of Isaiah. And here, Isaiah's vision goes from being international to being universal. God has moved from revealing his control over the individual destinies of the nations of the world in Isaiah's day, and now he shows the end of all of the nations, the end of all time and history to Isaiah and through him to us. Now the picture we hear and see is not of some distant nation, perhaps a nation that serves as a pattern for the present, but this could be any nation. It could be any city. It could be our nation, our city, our world. So first, Isaiah describes the reality of this judgment. This portion is sometimes called the Isaiah Apocalypse, not because Isaiah uses all the technical literary devices that are found in later apocalyptic writings that you might be familiar with, like the book of Daniel or Revelation or The Walking Dead. That was a joke. But he does weave together imagery to evoke a vision of the end of history as we know it. We could call this first section the great eviction. Verses 1 through 3, God empties the earth. All the inhabitants are deported, every single one. When Isaiah says God will twist the surface of the earth to scatter all the people, I think of trying to get those last ice cubes out of that ice tray, right? And you twist it so the last ice cubes pop out. Or um, as a parent, I think of trying to clean up children's Legos and having those big green mats and trying to twist it so all the pieces pop off. As God does this, he shows no favoritism and he allows no exceptions. It does not matter what your religious, social, political, or economic status is. It doesn't matter if you're among the elite or the anti-elite or just a face in the crowd. There are no legal loopholes. Lobbying for special treatment is excluded. In verses 17 and 18, those who try to find ways of escape are like animals who are stuck in the middle of an obstacle course of traps. Escape is impossible. All are swept up and all are swept away in God's great cleansing. The Bible describes the world as God's good creation. 
as a specially designed habitat for us, his creatures. Uh, scholars of biblical literature have pointed out that if we had read that full uh, passage from Genesis 1 describing the creation of the world, that the way that the writer of Genesis 1 structures it shows how God creates first places for creatures to be, and then he fills those places with his creatures. But here, God is now depopulating the earth. God's judgment is a verdict that humanity has forfeited their right of residence. The images of how this happened pile up one after another. It shifts then in verses 4 to 6 as a picture of drought or famine. Uh, verses 7 through 11 is a, a former party city under lockdown. No more visitors or tourists allowed. Uh, verse 13 is an orchard that's been stripped bare, no fruit left to enjoy. Verse 18, there's even an echo of the language of the flood in the days of Noah. God's judgment is an act of decreation, allowing the orderly creation to revert to disorder and chaos so that, as it says in verses 19 to 20, the earth disintegrates like you might see glass shatter. Now, nowadays, the expectation of an apocalyptic future may be the least controversial piece of this passage because we can imagine all kinds of ways that we could ruin the world around us. But the question then becomes not the reality of this future, the possibility of this future, but the reason for it. Why is God's judgment leveled? We see the reason given in here, the biblical reason in verses 5 and 6. Humanity has violated God's everlasting covenant. In the Bible, the covenant is a word for special relationship as established between different parties. And we often think of the covenants uh, that God makes with particular individuals and families and nations, such as the covenant with Abraham or with Moses or David or with the nation of Israel. But here, this everlasting covenant is pointing back before all of those things to the relationship that he enjoys by right of being the maker with all of creation and with all of humanity. It's the language that we heard in that passage uh, from Genesis 8, where God is addressing Noah and all humanity descending from him. This relationship is the background for the oracles about the nations that God has already issued through Isaiah. God is not a tribal deity. He is the sovereign who's in, in control of all nations of the world, and they are all subject to him. They are all responsible to him and are held accountable by him when they violate the moral order of his universe. And as God does this in this passage, it's, there's not an us-them where he's talking about all those other people, but not the chosen people that I have, whether Israel in the past or the church in the present. In fact, the language that is used here about the earth is... Um, ambiguous language that could be a reference to what we would think of as the planet Earth, uh, or um, it could refer to the land, which is a special reference for uh, that where uh, Israel lived. But Isaiah intentionally is ambiguous about it so that Israel is included in this verdict. And there is later in verse 4 a, a word used, the world, to emphasize that it's not, uh, it also includes all the world and not just Israel. 
Now, if I were speaking to an audience of mostly secular or skeptical listeners, I'd probably try to demonstrate the reality of a moral order greater than ourselves. And if you have questions about that claim, I'd be happy to talk more about it. But this morning, I want to come at this reality in a slightly different way. Instead, let me make an observation and an application. Since the Bible reminds us that this moral order applies to all of us, it gives us actually a point of contact with our friends and our neighbors, even if they are non-religious or skeptical, because they still operate in the realm of God's moral order, whether they admit it or not. In fact, most uh, secular people, even atheistic people, will say, even if I don't believe in God, I certainly believe in right and wrong. Don't force me to, to claim that I do not. So we all, as a result of that, feel the weight of what it says in verse 6, the guilt for resisting the law of the Creator, or we suffer the curse, what we might call the consequences of that resistance. And since we know ourselves to be guilty of such resistance also, that gives us a point of contact with others as we together with them experience the internal tension within us of guilt and the external pressure upon us of curse that results from violating God's standards of right and wrong in his world. Also, I think we're in the midst of a, a generational shift of sorts. Sometimes people will complain that we live in a relativistic society and it's still quite popular to say that there's no absolute right or wrong or uh, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. There's, that's just what's right and wrong for you. We might say that, but I'm not really convinced as I listen to people that very many of us actually believe that because as soon as somebody violates my sense of right and wrong and I'm the target of it, then all of a sudden I care deeply and personally. Or if I violate a right or wrong that's uh, precious to me, even if it's at the recipient of somebody else, again, all of a sudden I care very deeply about it, whether or not I am a Christian believer. Uh, we feel very strongly that some things are right and wrong now. I think we're becoming even more attuned to justice and injustice. Our new problem isn't admitting that there are some shared universal values. It's agreeing what they might be and what their foundation is. In this world, the judgment of God is no longer for Christians a liability that we have to explain away. It could, in fact, be an asset of the faith as we try to communicate it with others. It's actually quite striking that every summary of the Christian faith includes a reference to the judgment of God. You can go back to the Apostles' Creed, which says that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. You can go back behind the Apostles' Creed into the New Testament to the Apostle Paul. He goes to the city of Athens, a very uh, progressive, educated, sophisticated, intellectual place. Athens was the, the big university city of the Roman Empire. And talking to those people, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then we can go even back behind Paul to Jesus himself. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, has its own little apocalypse 
where Jesus says about the future, when the Son of Man, speaking of himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, he, uh, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left, and these, the goats, will go away into punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you cannot have Jesus without judgment. If you do, it's an imaginary Jesus of our own creation, not the real Jesus who lived in history and who altered the entire course of history so profoundly. So the question becomes at that point, what's our response to the judgment of God? You see two responses given in the passage. In verses 7 through 13, you see joy extinguished because the party's over, the music has stopped. God has cut off the flow of all of uh, the good things that were being enjoyed. But then, in the middle of this passage, you have verses 14 to 16, where joy is ignited. The glory of God that is celebrated in that song, which comes back at the very end of verse 23, it's the glory of God that leads to either delight or dismay. Uh, when we began the sermon series, I uh, referred to the North African um, uh, professor of philosophy turned theologian, Augustine, and how as a young adult convert, he uh, went to his pastor and asked, what book of the Bible should I read first? And his pastor said, Isaiah. He tried to read Isaiah, and he's like, I don't understand any of this. I'm a professor of philosophy, and this is over my head. Uh, and Yet, over the course of his lifetime, as he became uh, a pastor and a bishop in the church, his last most monumental work of theology is called The City of God. And in The City of God, he delves into Scripture and he explains from Scripture a pattern of humanity, which he uh, gets largely probably from Isaiah. And then later in Isaiah, it unfolds to the rest of Scripture this pattern of two cities who relate to God in two different ways. Throughout the section, 20, chapters 24 through 27, we're going to keep hearing about a city. And here, often that city is being destroyed. It's being undone. That's this earthly city. It's human society trying to live in independence from God. And then on the other side, there is a strong city that we're going to see later which is often referred to as, uh, in our passage, uh, a mountain, Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, Jerusalem renewed and restored. And what defines these two cities is what they love. The earthly city loves, uh, is defined by love of self, love of stuff, love of the world, love of what we're trying to get for ourselves. But the city of God is oriented not based on where you are geographically, where you are socially. It's oriented around what you love. Do you love God above all things? Which probably explains the different responses in this passage. Because when the, when the earthly city, when the human city loses all of the stuff that the creator gives, they are undone. Their hope is taken away. But even when all of that is taken away, the city of God, whose hope is him, 
whether or not he gives stuff, is still content because they have their first love in the presence of God himself. Notice that verses 14 to 16 describe a a course that echoes from the farthest reaches of the world. It's very uh, vague and uncertain who makes up this chorus, and Isaiah is probably doing that on purpose. God is probably doing that, that on purpose to emphasize something that he's told us all through the rest of the book of Isaiah, that he's going to call to himself people from his historic people, Israel, but also people from all the other nations, nations that have always been viewed by others as hostile to God. In fact, most of us here are the fruit of that invitation to all the other nations to come and know the God of Israel. At the same time that we see this joy in response to uh, the vindication of uh, God uh, by what he does in history, we also see verse, uh, six, the end of verse 16 and into 17 that Isaiah, sh- Isaiah shows that he takes no pleasure in announcing this judgment. And just as Isaiah takes no pleasure in it as he's, as he's in the middle of it, he's seen it all unfold, so also we should not be gleeful when we uh, warn people about God's judgment. I remember when I was in college, there was one time that I was uh, coming through the cafeteria. I'd finished my meal and was heading out to the next thing, and I passed this table, and there was um, somebody sitting at the table who, uh, you know, I was relatively well-connected with the different uh, campus Christian groups and local churches, so I had a pretty good sense of most of the believers on campus, probably, obviously not exhaustive, and yet there's this guy I'd never seen before, and uh, he was having a theological conversation, which mostly consisted of him talking about hell and how all of his friends that were sitting at the table were definitely going there. And, uh, like, he literally sort of yelled this, like joyfully, playfully with his friends, and um, maybe that's an evangelistic technique that he had uh, mastered in some way, and I just don't know how it works, but it seemed like it was poorly done, rolled off of his tongue a little too easily. And that's not the tone that you see Isaiah take here, and it's not the tone hundreds of years later that Jesus takes when he approaches Jerusalem which welcomes him with uh, celebration initially, but eventually hostility. He weeps over the rebellion of his people who will not uh, enjoy him and submit to his care. In this chapter, God gives us a glimpse of the end of time. As we've seen elsewhere, God intends to renew and restore creation, but before that, the creation will be undone. But what we celebrate during this this upcoming Easter season, what we celebrate every single Sunday in our worship, is that God subjects his creation to nothing that he is not willing to endure himself. I'm playing a little bit this morning with the historic Christian calendar. We tend to uh, emphasize uh, the the cross and the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday in our Reformed Presbyterian tradition. Uh, But in the wider Christian tradition, the historic Christian calendar, uh, this would often be Palm Sunday that's observed, uh, when we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But since we meet in a movie theater, and they're probably playing a movie Friday, we can't do a Good Friday service, I want us to remember that the triumphal entry drives to Good Friday the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
because long before that future final end, long before the judgment of God upon all of his creation, we can look in history and see the judgment of God fell in the middle of history and it fell on his own son. Jesus came, we celebrate at, uh, at Christmas time, he came to take on our humanity, but he did that so that he might be the one who offers his life uh, in our place on the cross. Jesus, uh, at the very end of his public ministry, says this, it's in the Gospel of John, it's the end of chapter 12. After this, in the Gospel of John, he entirely focuses on his disciples on that last night um, before his arrest. It says, Jesus had many, done many signs before them. They still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see and understand and turn. Isaiah said these things because they saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities did believe him, but for fear of the Pharisees, their fellows, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the religious assembly. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. As we think about what it means to live in light of the judgment of God falling on Jesus for us, let me give a couple ways this would change the way we interact with each other and with those around us. First of all, in the court of public opinion, you don't have to defend yourself, right? So many of us are twisted in knots because we're trying to control the way that others judge us, and it can make you neurotic. You don't have to do that. You also don't have to fix every other problem that exists in the world. It's more than you or I or all of us together can do. There are some things that we've been working together on as a society, and we cannot figure out how to get it right, and then some things we fix and we make other things wrong afterwards. God we can, is the one we can trust to judge and to make things new. Since it's not your job to fix every problem that exists, you don't also have to get outraged about every evil in the world. You can weep over them. Jesus wept over them. You can pray for them. But you don't have to get wrapped up in knots of anger because he's going to come, cleanse, and renew it all. And then finally, we can sympathize with those who have suffered injustice. The world isn't how God wants it to be. We aren't how he wants us. And you don't have to prove to someone that whatever they've suffered must be for good because God's in control. God actually never does that. In fact, he says that there's true evil. And he, can, he does say that he can subvert that evil. He can bring good out of it. 
And the crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest example of this. Because at no point does God ever say, the death of my son on the cross was good. He says it was wicked. It was treasonous. Jesus did not deserve that mistreatment and abuse that he received. And yet, God used it in his control of all history, and he did redeem it, but he didn't make the injustice just. It didn't make the abuse okay. And most of all, we remember that the cross shows us that the judgment of God is good news for us. We might uh, wonder, what does the judgment of God say about his character? Can he still be compassionate and loving and forgiving? But when God opens the veils to heaven and we see Jesus sitting on the throne there, resurrected from the dead, made glorious, he will still be able to show us his pierced hands and his pierced feet and the injury in his side. And he'll ask, is that compassionate enough? Do you doubt me? Or do you trust me to judge justly who have been judged for you? Let's pray and give thanks. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for the hope that is ours in, the ju- in your judgment because Jesus was judged for us. We will be vindicated. You will clear the guilty, not only proclaiming us innocent, but proclaiming us righteous because Jesus has borne our guilt for us so that we might bear the rewards of his goodness on us. We thank and praise you that all of the things that we do that we know displease you in a variety of ways, nonetheless, do not change the fact that you relate to those who have faith in you through Jesus as beloved sons and daughters, and because we're in him, you are delighted with us because you're delighted with Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that's working in us, and we pray that through the Holy Spirit's presence in us, we would be witnesses to the world of the good news of your judgment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.